Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Yes, hello, hello. It's episode 216 of Human Factors Cast. We're recording this live on August 26th, 2021. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today, as always, by my good friend and yours, Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Man, Nick, you said 216, and for some reason, I couldn't even believe it. How are you doing today, man? I'm I'm good. 216 episodes later. Uh, look, we know you're here for the news, but we have some programming updates that we'd like to share with you all before we get into everything. I'm going to talk about this um, because there's there's a lot going on behind the scenes here at Human Factors Cast. I want you all to be aware of it. So first and foremost, we have a digital media lab, if you're unaware, Uh and I say that, I said it last week, I'm going to say it again this week, there are some really exciting opportunities if you want to join that lab, if you're a student looking for some more real-world experience, if you're uh, an early career professional looking to do some extracurricular activities, if you're you know, a PhD who's been in the business for 30 years. I, I, we're welcoming to all types of people in the Human Factors uh, Digital Media Lab, and there's, like I said, some exciting opportunities coming up. Um, speaking of which, this kind of rolls into that. We know you all like conference coverage, uh, and we're adding a new one to our list. Um, so we've been invited to the Neuroergonomics Conference in 2021. Uh, this is from September 11th to the 16th. Um, we've been invited. You'll have coverage. What that looks like, we're still ironing out the details, but there will be coverage on it, and it'll be really exciting. Uh, we'll put a link below for you all to uh, check out the conference yourself. Um, and uh, I think the last bit of information here is there the um, deep dive on the Olympics. We mentioned that a couple weeks ago. It will be coming out this week. There's been a couple delays with that, uh, but it will be out this weekend on Saturday. So look forward to that, and then we'll be back to the regularly scheduled deep dives next week. Um, more announcements next week. Uh, but, you know, follow us on all our social channels and all that stuff if you want to be alerted a little bit earlier on that stuff. That's all I'll say. Uh, if you've been listening to our pre-show on on any of the streaming platforms, you kind of know what's in store there. But uh, that's, that's, that's what we'll leave it at there. But we know why you're here. You're here for Human Factors News. So let's do it. That's right. This part of the show is all about Human Factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. This week, it looks like you got some VR in my education. Blake, what is the story this week? This week, we got researchers demonstrating the effectiveness of 3D visualization as a learning tool, or as VR, as Nick mentioned, VR. So researchers from the NeuroEngine... Imaging Center at NYU Abu Dhabi have developed the UW Virtual Brain Project, producing unique, interactive, and 3D narrated diagrams to help students learn about the structure and function of perceptual systems inside the human brain. A new study to come along with this development is how looked at how students responded to learning lessons both on desktop and in virtual reality, offering new insights into the possible benefits of VR as an educational tool. Through the various experiments, researchers found that participants showed significant content 
based learning for both devices with no significant difference between PC and VR devices for content-based learning outcomes. However, the interesting part comes when you think about VR, what did exceed PC in terms of achieving experience-based learning outcomes. In other words, VR was found to be more enjoyable and easier to use by students. So as a direct quote from some of the researchers, students are, were more enthusiastic about learning in VR. However, the findings did indicate that learners have similar access to learning about functional neuroanatomy through multiple platforms, which means that those don't, that don't have access to VR technology are not at an adherent disadvantage. The power of VR is the ability to transport learners into new environments they may not otherwise be able to explore. But importantly, VR is not a substitute for real-world interactions with peers and instructors. So Nick, this is an interesting one because we've definitely talked about VR on the show, talked about various you know impacts of learning in different modalities. Uh, but it's, it's cool here that now we're seeing it's not just a content-only kind of change we're seeing between PC and VR, but we're actually seeing people just enjoying the learning experience a little bit more. Now, that VR is something you're very well versed in. So let's get your take here on kind of what you think might be going on. Yeah. Uh, let's here. Let's let's even just back it up and see what everybody else thinks. Um, so I'm going to get right into social thoughts at the top here. So th the thing that we asked you all on all of our social media channels uh, is, have you ever used VR to learn new things? Um, and then if not, what applications do you think VR would excel at? So we asked that question. Uh, we did a poll on our Instagram. We had a response of 50-50. 50% yes, 50% no. So I'm surprised that the percentage was that high. But, you know, the more I think about it, in our field, uh, training is huge. And so, you know, you think about um, some of the other stories that we've talked about on the show before, training in VR. Uh, I can very easily see, you know, like a, a, a surgeon training in VR and thinking that that is learning, which it is, right? It's learning how to do an operation in VR. Uh, and this story itself is just kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, well, even without um, you know, doing a procedure, a step-by-step -step, uh, procedure to perform something on something, <laughs> you know, you are still uh, encountering those learning effects by using virtual reality as a tool to get people to understand the concept. Uh, I do want to briefly touch on, uh, before we go any further, there's the image that we used for tonight's show kind of shows a view from inside um, the headset and what you're looking at there is a brain with uh, a, a, a screen in front and, and it's in VR and um, this is actually a video that the researchers put out. It actually goes through how, um, you know, you, it's interactive in the sense that you can walk around this brain. You can see uh, the eyeballs linked to the occipital lobe uh, through the nerves and everything and it's all very... Um, very interactive so you can actually like look at it from various views and it's it's communicating things that are hard to see you can't look inside the brain you can't see these synapses firing you can't see the processes going on and so that's what the effectiveness here of this tool is and i think that makes sense i think the idea with using virtual reality as a technology to encourage learning these topics that are traditionally harder to learn makes sense to me. Uh, I'm glad there's research out there that is that is looking at it. I don't know. What, what's your read on this, Blake? 
So I think it, it makes intuitive sense in some ways, but I would wonder if as time goes on, if you do more, you know, application or interaction based virtual experiences for learning, if we would see them overcome kind of like PC being, you know, neck and neck with VR content based learning outcomes. I think depending on the level of schooling, yeah, totally. VR could be a very interesting medium to get students engaged because it's like it's a newer technology. It's a different way of experiencing things um, and definitely like being able to see processes in the brain in a, in a way that you can't really get out of a textbook and you may not be able to, you know, feel very immersed in even in a like PC learning experience where you could essentially see a similar video, but not have it be something you could walk around and kind of get your own perspective on or not to the same extent as you can with the VR goggle side. Uh, but I, I do think the researchers make some interesting points in that it's not really meant to be a real world interaction substitute with your peers and your instructors. But I think after, you know, in the world we've lived in for, you know, over a year, I guess, with kind of COVID separating things out, I feel like VR headsets and a virtual reality experience could actually be a way to really bring people together in the classroom more so than, you know, the limitations that zoom brings or something like that. So there's definitely a lot of power of the tool that I, I would likely bet if I was betting man that over time VR will become much more um, kind of immersive and you might see even more content based learning outcomes for students in the classroom. And then much more so I would think in the field, kind of like you mentioned with different surgery techniques. Yeah, so that's an important distinction. Let's talk about the differences here between PC learning and VR learning. And from my understanding is that they kind of showed them the same thing. You can navigate in a virtual environment on PC. Um, however, the the VR aspect of it, because it's more interactive, uh, you know, it, it kind of became more enjoyable and students are enthusiastic about it, easier to use because you no longer have to worry about moving a mouse and keyboard and all the input um, messiness that comes with that. Uh, you know, it's intuitive because you're wearing a headset and your head is then controlling your view as it would in the real environment. And that's kind of the advantage there, right? So you can actually like duck down and look under the the brain to see how everything's going and, and um as opposed to like trying to maneuver with mouse and keyboard. I think that is kind of the difference there. I'm curious though, there's, uh, you know, Katie in our, our Slack asked a question, you know, is VR more enjoyable because it's still new or is there a way to make PC learning more enjoyable? So how do we equate these two, right? What's, what's your thoughts on that, Blake? So I thought it was interesting uh, definitely in a good sense that they found between PC and VR that we're still getting those content-based learning outcomes that are, equivalent. So when we talk about content-based learning outcomes, the assumption is is that they're actually talking about what did somebody learn? If I if I ask them a bunch of questions after going through this VR or PC lesson, did were the students able to retain enough information and do comprehension well enough that they could answer, you know, test questions, quiz questions type of thing. Um, and so actually from the VR side, I may have expected it to be a little bit less less so than the PC just because of kind of exactly what Katie has said here. It's a novel experience. It's something new, something new to get used to as well. So I would imagine you get probably just like any kind of PC training, like almost some tutorial or some walkthrough of how to use the technology. But in terms of can it 
can PC games be more enjoyable? And is VR kind of a way to kind of help push that? I think that's a, a great point is that what can we really instill or what can we make a comparable experience from what's making VR enjoyable? And that hopefully is a line of research that's still being actively sought after by researchers is really digging into a little bit more of why is it why is it an enjoyable experience to learn in VR? Is it just because it's new? Is it because of the interactive mediums? Or can we bring some of that more um, kind of 360 degree view of the brain in this case uh, to PC learning platforms? Because uh, I, I do think that one big barrier here is how do we get VR headsets accessible to a lot of different people, um, especially in the school setting. But from your perspective, Nick, I mean, do you think that there's a way to make the two equivalent or will we able, ever really be able to bridge that gap of immersiveness uh, on the PC side once we've experienced, you know, VR in the headset format? I think that's an interesting question. I think the uh, the interesting bit to me here is that I'm going to reread this quote. You read it in the blur, but I'm going to reread it because I think it's important and I want to hammer it home, right? Uh, Rockers says, our findings indicate that learners can have similar access to learning about functional neuroanatomy, the brain thing that I talked about, through multiple platforms, which means that those who don't have access to VR technology are not at an inherent disadvantage. The power of VR is its ability to transport learners to new environments they thought they might not otherwise be able to explore. But importantly, VR is not a substitute for real-world interactions with peers and instructors. So, uh, I do want to revisit this because this this quote is saying a lot here. Um, basically, what they're saying is that VR, just because it was more enjoyable to use, just because uh, it was a little bit more intuitive, doesn't mean that they learned any better or worse, right? They're, they're, um, I think there is something to be said about the enjoyableness of learning. There's something to be said about making learning fun and engaging. And that might be what VR does well, um, you know. And so it, it, in terms of navigating on a computer and trying to see a virtual environment on a computer, um, especially now, the, a lot of the younger generation are trained in how to navigate virtual environments because video games are so prevalent, because um, other types of experiences are now virtual. And so there's less of a learning curve for them. And so if you put a virtual environment in front of them, they're going to have an easier time navigating those than an aging population, for example, right? So I think the these virtual environments and learning in VEs are, are going to be really important in the future, especially for some of these more abstract concepts or concepts that you can't normally see, right? That's why they're using neuroanatomy in this in this example is because you have a brain that you can't really get inside of, you can't see it. They're using these virtual environments to simulate that. Um, now, do I think that, you, that your question was regards with regards to can we make PC as uh, good? <laughs> I, I'm paraphrasing here as good as VR. I think it is right. I think the interaction method um, changes how effective learning can be right because again once you get that enthusiasm then learning is fun and that's shown to make things stick longer right that's kind of my thoughts on it yeah so with their quote i kind of don't agree with them i do think that if you're unable to 
like if if VR really provides more enjoyable experience across a big enough sample size, then for me that could be putting some people at a disadvantage because I definitely remember being in school not really liking a lot of the topics I was learning about. And so it made school a lot harder. It was like not taught in an interesting medium at that time. I didn't really have, you know, a whole lot of PC based anything um, besides various like gaming classes I took early on in you know, high school and stuff like that. So I do think that there is some disadvantage there in that if we can get learning to be more exciting and more in some ways accessible, potentially um, for people, that's awesome. And that does have a powerful leverage to like keep people either growing in their, in the curriculum they're in, or just continuing to learn even outside of school. Um, one thing that comes to mind with like, how do you really strike this different balance between PC learning and VR learning, even though we're seeing from the content side that it's very similar or comparable. I think one thing that might be worth considering is what can we do to make, I guess, PC learning maybe more interactive um, so what, what can be done to either keep people engaged or have it feel maybe more like a game as if you're like, you know, doing various things for the neuroanatomy class to keep you, you know, either going through a bunch of different steps and keeping you physically engaged through like mouse or controller actions, uh, but also like answering questions and things like that. But I, I do think the, the best part here is that we're seeing there's no big difference between the two in terms of what you're learning. Uh, but the power to be able to make, you know, learning more fun is, is really important to me anyway. Uh, but nonetheless, I think it, it brings up the bigger question of like, okay, if this ever starts to demonstrate that it's a, a viable tool for learning in the classroom, how do we really start getting this into school systems and all sorts of stuff like that? So there's, it's definitely becomes a very complicated problem. I would imagine the more that researchers study this kind of stuff. Yeah, I do want to talk about briefly, you mentioned what can we do to bring PCs up to the level of VR? And I think there's a couple things. Um, and and of course, I'm going to separate this by say, or I guess, disclaimer this by saying it may not necessarily be uh, cheap or inexpensive to do, but things like adding gestural based um the interactions to these virtual environments on a PC might do something, right? I think when you're when you're thinking about VR, you're moving your head, you're navigating a virtual environment, you're looking around. Uh, if you if you have at least some way to manipulate the virtual environment in a way that's analogous to how you might do it in the real world, right? Like let's say I have an object in front of me and I'm using my hands to move it around. If you have a gestural based interface using a webcam and advanced AI to detect what your hands are doing and how it maps to the virtual uh, object, then you might be able to, you know, move that thing around and see it in different ways without necessarily compromising the uh, interactivity or intuitiveness of the design, right? If you can reach out in front of you and kind of pretend like you're moving the thing around and see it actually move on the screen, hold it in your hand, view it over here, uh, and then there's also, you know, holographic displays as well, which might be, again, uh, futuristic looking. But, you know, I can see something like that where, again, you have like an Iron Man display or Star Wars hologram where you can actually manipulate it by touching it uh, and, and looking around. Or if you have it in a 3D space, right, where you have a holo holographic display, you know, you can do that with um, glass and mirrors and. Uh, and really, that's all you need for something like this, where you project it onto those um, angled glasses and mirrors, and you can walk around and see 
the same thing in a real environment, but the 3D object is projected into the real environment, that might be another way to kind of close that gap between VR and PC learning. And I know I'm getting kind of out of the out of the box there with the uh, with the holographic display. But I think, you know, bringing that intuitiveness of interaction to uh, the PC version could be one way to uh, bridge that gap. Now, I want to ask you, Blake, what do you think um, about the VR application itself, like using VR, made it easier to use or more intuitive for the users? Sure. So I'd imagine, depending on the VR headset that you're using, but I, I would imagine since it's more potentially up to date, like it's more recently made, the it, there's been thought gone into, you know, okay, what about the interactions that need to happen or, you know, changes in view that need to happen for this specific anatomy class? They've really been thought through. So there, there would be a lot of ways to make it feel for a user that's going through this course or going through this program, let's say. They would just make it kind of feel a little bit more um, streamlined or intuitive than maybe like clicking through a bunch of different slides or trying to navigate various diagrams and things like that. Also, I think another thing that might make it easier to use is the fact that it's it, – because these were basically like narrated, um, you know, class – classroom curriculum stories about specific parts of the brain, how the neuroanatomy and chemistry works within the brain itself. So I would imagine like being kind of stuck and not being able to be distracted by your own classmates or anything else going on in the room around you besides this one thing that you're trying to learn about could really have a lot of benefits in terms of like immersing you, but also like as a young mind, maybe reducing any distraction that you might experience outside so I think that oh, those yeah. few things put together could really just make for a, an interesting learning environment because in, in traditional school, like you, there's a lot of things going on. Um, might be looking at here, your phone or <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could be doing a plethora of other things, messing around with things on your desk or, you know, like passing notes with your friends or, you know, making jokes or whatever it may be. So something like this can really focus your attention. And I know in a, in a world that we're, I think we all are kind of at a constant battle for our own attention. This could really kind of focus you in good increments to help you learn things quickly or at least stay kind of engaged. Yeah, I agree. I, I want to shift gears just a little bit. And I want to start talking about like the future applications of this, because I think we have a pretty good understanding of, why VR is as effective as it is here um, and kind of the, the general gist of the story. I want to move into kind of um, speculation time or uh, application time, I think is more uh, applicable, right? So I, I want to get back to the social thoughts. So we did ask, you know, uh, what applications do you think VR would excel at specifically for learning? Um, and we got a couple of responses here. Uh, there was one that has to be remained anonymous on, on Instagram here. It says Google Maps would be useful to learn about spatial relationships, uh, for example, military operations with complex terrain. So this would be, um, you know, I feel like that's a little bit borderline training, but I think that's a great point is that if you are going to a new environment where you need some awareness of what's going on and in, in spa spatially uh, relative to you, that could be incredibly useful, right? I think um, learning about the geography of a planet could be kind of cool to experience in VR, right? You, you can cut away um, the layers of the earth and see it rather, you know, from where you're standing and not necessarily uh, have to look at it in a textbook. You could see that 
um, and what it's actually doing live or, you know, some simulation of what it's doing live. I think that'd be a very cool application. Uh, Sims Dami on Instagram also says job training. Um, I think we talked about training quite a bit on the show in terms of VR and what it can do. I think I think training is learning, right? It's learning how to do perform an action to perform a job. Um, so I think these are great answers. Blake, can you think of anything else here that you want to add to these two? No, I think these are really great observations of how VR could be useful. Cause, and they're all very related to learning itself. I mean, based on this article alone, and then really your description of like how we could enhance PC stuff to make it, you know, more interactive. I really think there's an opportunity for companies like Oculus to get involved in research like this to start trying to you know provide schools with VR headsets because what you described there's a lot of technology that would have to be developed or created that sounds more like it would be cheaper for companies to donate headsets to you know high schools or colleges or whatever um, than creating kind of brand new types of interaction methods although that has a has benefits in and of itself um, and I know one really big kind of application space now is like game learning. And so that's where like there is a lot of opportunity for game developers that are, you know, maybe not working for a AAA studio, but they end up doing, you know, building different types of learning games. So doing this through VR could be a really interesting way to kind of help enhance, you know, students' ability to learn and different types of curriculums they can experience early on um, before they even get to college. So I think overall it has the capability to really transform the things that or what, how we think about school now and what it could be in the future. Yeah, I agree. I want to, I want to bring up one more comment um, that Katie made in our, in our discord here. It could also be great for magic school bus like experiences. So things like visiting space, shrinking down to the size of a bee, becoming a drop of water that goes through the water cycle, exploring the digestive systems, thing, things like that. And I think that's a great comment. I think, um, it is those kind of abstract experiences or abstract things uh, that that happen but are not easily observable that are incredibly useful for some, some application like this. Uh, I do want to say if you are interested in sharing your social thoughts with us, please uh, follow us on all of our social channels. We usually post them on Twitter and Instagram to get your thoughts. Uh, and we'll read them here on the show. So we do that every Thursday when we know what the story is. Uh, Blake, I, I want to wrap up here. Any other closing thoughts on using VR as a learning tool? I really hope that they try and teach complex physics subjects through VR. Because I, I, that was something I really struggled with through a lot of my engineering courses was visualizing how various formulas actually worked. Um, and so I my best tutor was like always providing me with a lot, lot of examples where we would draw stuff out on the board. So I can imagine the visual medium that VR lends itself to and the immersion that it provides learning kind of how physics works could be a really interesting um, foray or a way to like get that kind of ingrained in somebody's mind. Uh, yeah. What about you? Any closing thoughts for this VR story? Uh, not for me. I do want to read one more thing from Katie, uh, cause it's, it's that cool. And I do, I do want to <laughs> say it. So I could see learning in VR being great for language learning. You could interact with, uh, non-player characters in a world that mimics the real life experiences of talking with people who are native speakers. I think that'd be a really cool application. Um, I think there's a ton of really neat applications that this could be used for. Obviously VR nerd over here. So, uh, you know, if you think about virtual environments and applications for VEs, you can really like the sky's the limit. You can do anything as long as you can create that VE. You can put somebody in it and and 
when it comes to teaching those experiences, I think there's a lot of unique opportunities that maybe we're just on the cusp of discovering how to effectively use VR as a learning tool. So that's that's it for me. Um, I just want to thank our patrons for choosing this story this week, and thank you to our friends over at NYU Abu Dhabi and the University of Wisconsin for our new story this week. If you want to follow along, you can join me on Office Hours every Tuesday, or sorry, every Monday now at 4 p.m., uh, where I find these news stories. I do post the links to uh, the original articles on our weekly roundup on our blog. You can also join us in our Slack or Discord for more discussion on these stories. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to see what's going on around the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Remember, it depends. Uh, <laughs> a huge thank you, as always, to our patrons, and especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running. You keep our lights on. Thank you so much for your continued support. Uh, if you want to become a patron, um, check it out. There's there's a lot of cool things up there, including a, uh, uh, what, a, a little bag, a reusable bag you can get as a patron. <laughs> uh, you can become a show sponsor if you want to do that. Um there's some pretty cool things. We're always giving back to you all. And uh, uh, Human Factors Minute, of course, always never fails to disappoint, even for us. Like, we we listen to it uh, as listeners because we produce a bunch at one time. And then, um, you know, it comes out and we're like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's, that's something that we can learn about. And we're always reminded. So go check those out. All right. So I think it's time for us to switch gears and get into this next part of the show. It came from... It came from... It came from uh, this week is Reddit. It's all, it's all Reddit this week. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics that the community is asking about. If you find these answers useful, uh, give us a like wherever you're watching. Help other people find this content. All right, let's get into it. The first one up we have here is UI UX over developer. This is from uh, Twa8U, Twa8U on the user experience subreddit. They ask, what is the difference between a UI UX designer and an app developer slash web designer if all they do is the same work respectively? Why would you need a developer if a UI UX designer can do the same? How different is their work at the core and end of the product? Blake, I'm really interested in your perspective on this. What What is the difference between a UI UX designer versus an app developer or web designer? Yeah, so let's go through that. I feel like B, I'm going to struggle with. But A, I have some concrete ideas. So for UI and UX, I know it's been a traditional mainstay, it feels like, to kind of see those like as slash titles for a lot of people. But I think nowadays, it's much more. they're much more uh, considered kind of very specialized parts of the process, if you will. 
UI, user interface, that really kind of tells you where the focus is. It's very much tends to be on some of the visual design aspects, you know, some of the maybe the deep detailed interaction design will even come with that. Uh, but a lot of the times you're talking about like we've, we've left the UX research and uh, upfront phases to get to a more polished design. And that's where a lot of the times a UX designer might hand off concepts or work to a UI designer to help start building things. Another place that I see a lot of kind of UI designers working in, uh, depending on the company and depending on their specialty, is focusing a lot on some of the branding aspects of developing branding or helping people redesign their entire brand. So a lot of like a big focus on visual design. UX designer, again, this can be kind of a hybrid thing, but a lot of times this for me is much more focused on some of the upfront user experience research all the way up until maybe some of the first medium fidelity wireframes. So understanding really user needs and translating those into initial designs. That's really where I see UX designer living. Um, now, in terms of the difference between app developer and web designer, I think it depends on what those two titles really mean to you. App developer can be very, very different from web designer because there are specific languages that are very much focused on app development. So hence that that is a specialized title. There are exceptions, of course, with things like React Native where you can build in a much more web-based framework in order to create stuff that's going to be mobily accessible both through like Android and iOS. But I don't think that's the crux of this question. I think web designer, the diff main difference there is maybe somebody who focuses on only creating designs or building things for the web. So a lot of times you might see this nowadays as a front-end engineer or front-end developer um, who focuses on maybe creating websites or web apps in kind of, let's say, web-related technology in like HTML, JavaScript, CSS. And they really stick to, you know, also dealing with some of the responsive design components, which may be why there's confusion between app and then web design, because there is a little bit of an overlap in responsiveness. But the, the thing that I'm a little, I wish, and again, this is my favorite part of the show, but it always leaves me wanting to ask more questions, because ultimately the question kind of stems into the next part saying they do respectively the same work, right? Well, in a lot of ways, I don't think that's true. Um, so I would think you... The, so the, the second question that's embedded here is why would you need a developer if a UI, UI or UX designer can do the same thing? Ultimately, I think that there is kind of a movement of people that are focused in design or focused in front-end engineering, being more savvy on both sides. So learning a little bit of design, learning how to code. Um, and so you see a lot of a lot more hybrid kind of job postings than you used to under like UX engineer. But I do think that the two two or three roles, depending on your perspective, are very much needed because developers at the end of the day are the people who are going to take a design and create it and make it real within the technical constraints and budget and timeline that are available. Um, so although you could, you could have like a UX designer who knows how to code or understands code or UI designer with the same skills, ultimately having a developer can be the one way that you're actually going to make this design real in most cases. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the core difference is they just have different specialties. Uh, I think that there is value and benefit of each one of those roles, understanding various aspects of knowing how code works or knowing frameworks that are being used, but also understanding design and user needs. So although they have different jobs, I think they have to work pretty harmoniously together for us to get some of the awesome products that we have today. And that was a mouthful. Nick, 
try and bring us home. What do you see as the difference between these various jobs, and are they doing the same thing? Yeah, I love it when we approach a question very differently, Blake, because I think what you approached this question was like uh, basically de- uh, describing an ideal team and idealized roles when I think it's uh, I-, I think in practice it's a lot messier than that. And what I'm thinking um, that this person is asking here is that they have a lot of similar skills as this other person with a different job title. And they're asking what those idealized job responsibilities should be. Now, I think if they do share a lot of the same responsibilities, I think that was probably a hiring manager's uh, poor decision because they, hi- they they you know crossed over too much. I think you did a great job, Blake, of laying out kind of what the idealized roles are, um, you know, and kind of like an ideal team of having a UI designer, a UX researcher, an uh, you know a prototyper, a web developer, uh, some sort of manager for that whole team that that, uh, you know, it acts as the glue to kind of make all of them cohesive together. Um, you know, I think that is an ideal team. I, th- I think an ideal team is five people. Uh, I think it's a UX researcher that um, interacts with a UX designer that, so you have the person who does the research, you give that to somebody who interprets the results and um, turns that into like a wireframe or mockups. And then you give that to the UI designer and then they make it pretty and then you have uh and i i'm i'm that sounds very pejorative when i say they make it pretty but they do a great job of you know making the look and feel uh maybe not so much the feel i think that's more ux anyway they get they give the look of the product and then that whole package you know yeah have like some interaction design from the ux designer um and the stuff from the ux designer the ui designer then goes to the app developer the developer in general um and if you want to add a perfect scenario, you have some prototyper in the middle of that that takes all these concepts as they're being worked on and iterates on them, uh, you know, and, and then you have the manager that kind of acts as the glue. That, to me, is the perfect setup, um, but a lot of teams don't necessarily have those resources. So oftentimes you'll be sharing responsibilities. So you might be a user researcher and a UX designer where you then interpret your own research and provide recommendations for, um, you know, content layout, user experience, that type of thing based on what you know. And that's what human factors a lot of the times is, right? So uh, long story short, if two people are doing the same job, you need to have a conversation because uh, you need somebody else to code that thing up. Uh, And if your role is like user experience person, then uh, there's two of you doing the same work. That's that's my thoughts on it. <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to get into this next one here. This one's called New Hierarchy, UX Team Under Head of PM. This is from Remy Smith on the User Experience subreddit. My boss, as head of design, just resigned after struggling too long with internal politics. His job won't be replaced anytime soon, and the product designers left behind will be reporting to the head of PM for the foreseeable future. This person knows and cares very little about user-centered design, and I expect problems here. How am I supposed to fight for the user if the person who drives ideas bordering dark patterns is my direct superior? Should a UX team not be a little more independent and be on the same level as product management? Blake, how do we tackle this problem? Yeah, this is a really hard one, and it's, it's very... It's kind of funny how this show sometimes mirrors real life. 
Um, cause a, a friend of mine just experienced a very similar problem. Um, and so it, it's funny that this is kind of happening in very much the same way. Uh, but the, the reality here is, and I, I don't know if this is really going to be a popular answer to this, Nick, this may not be the place for you yeah, because at the end of the day, if your boss that was the head of design left, you understand that let's say that person was actually doing the job at a in a good way. They were fighting for UX, they were fighting for, you know, getting user centered design to have its its own two feet within the company, but not getting very far. Um, this just may not be a place for you to really learn and grow in. Uh, but at the same time, what could you do outside of it? One thing that I would suggest is actually having a meeting with your boss, the head of design that left, and asking if you don't know all the ins and outs of the internal politics, what they did in their time there to try and move move the ball forward in the UX or UCD court. Because that will tell you what things may not work or what things to maybe try differently uh, with your upper management. I mean, one thing that I know we've talked about on this show before is sometimes it becomes a you have to prove it to other people type of situation. So you get in this space where you basically have to be continuing to evangelize UX or UCD or human factors within the company, but you may also just have to be doing a pretty good job at showing the impact that you're having through whatever design activities you may have going on, whether it's UX research activities, if you're actually impacting development and design, You've got to show and be able to communicate that ROI up the chain. It does seem a little odd that there's nobody that's going to necessarily, in the meantime, replace your your former head of design, which again does yell out to me that if that's the, the feeling inside the culture, maybe design's just not really that valued. And again, it's going to be a pretty hard uphill battle to kind of change the way the things are now. Um, but that's kind of all I've got. Really kind of a Debbie Downer on that one, but... Definitely talk to your your previous boss, get suggestions on how they would continue to tackle the problem um, from kind of your your perspective. And sometimes it just becomes a conflict of personality, like whether we want to admit that stuff or not. So it may be that because you are not the head of a, head of the design department, but you're somebody who's doing the the hard work, maybe you know removing that that tension between bosses will change things. Uh, but I would definitely focus on like showing the impact that your team is having. Um, and then maybe having a conversation later down the line about dark patterns being everywhere, <laughs> but that's, that's a comp- topic for a different discussion. Yeah. I, I would say two things, right? Ensure that you are communicating ROI, what you're doing matters, uh, why what you're doing will impact the product the second thing I want to bring up is kind of a link to last week. It's um, it, when we talked about the person who really just couldn't do anything because higher ups kept saying, just do it like this. And they were kind of like, okay, well, I'm just going to do it because no matter how much I push back, they're not going to um, listen to me. And so I think that that answer that we gave for that one applies a lot to this one too, where you can keep pushing um, but if you truly have a person who is set in their ways, I don't know how much change they're going to go if, you know, <laughs> if they're if they're trying to recommend dark patterns here, uh, you might just need to do your best to work within those constraints and pick your battles. I think picking your battles is an incredibly 
good skill to have if you know that users will benefit from one thing a lot less than another thing well maybe just let that one thing slide and i know that's hard to do as as a human factors practitioner or ux person i think that is a very hard thing to do to let go of something that you know is right that you know will improve user performance but if you need to do it to make sure that you know it's the sacrifice of the one for the good of the many type of analogy here uh, you might need to do that. Pick your battles. I think everything that Blake said is is good too. You know, uh, if you can meet with the person, if you have a good relationship with that previous boss, head of design, talk to them. If you can, uh, they're not getting paid for it, so good luck. But you know, if they're if, if they're passionate about it and they just left because of internal politics, you might be able to pick their ear about it. Um, I other than that, I know it's a tough one. It's a very tough one. Uh, I'd say pick your battles and and try to push back where you can and. Um, if you're not seeing results just like your boss did, then I don't know. It's tough. There are a couple options. <laughs> Look for another job or, you know, uh, push until they can't push back or something, something breaks that, that I could think happen. One last <laughs> bit there. If like, and I've, I've experienced this before where it's like, you can't necessarily, <laughs> you can't necessarily find a way to like find an advocate in upper management. But what about the various cross-functional teams you work with? Do they see issues with the current design or issues with practices of what's going on inside of it? So sometimes if you can, you know, find other people at your same level that see the issues, sometimes working together to, again, demonstrate ROI or demonstrate changes that could have, you know, positive impacts for your product and ultimately your end user. That's another way to go about it if really going, you know, up the hill to like the PM level is just not working. Yeah. Good point. All right. Last one here. Uh, I have minimal Excel skills, Microsoft Excel. Would you improve Excel skills or just go straight to R or Python? This is from Bubba Natep on user experience. Blake, what's, uh, oh wait, Sarah, I'm going to read the actual thing here. Spent my entire life learning design software. My Excel skills are okay, but I still have to ask some people sometimes when I need to go do some intermediary stuff. UX is trending towards needing data science skills. Would you ditch the Excel and go straight to R or Python? Blake, uh, your reaction says it all. What 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 should this person do? Uh, you're gonna hate me. It uh, so we uh, we talked a little bit about this in the pre-show, so it definitely depends now because I've had more time to digest it and think about it. Um, so I'll give you my gut answer was go to R Python. Um, I just had a lot of I thought it was interesting that that was the jump to make, uh, but also that's kind of where my interests lie. Like if you've heard the show before, if you've heard me talk about various you know things that I'm interested in, coding is one of them. I'm pretty proficient in R at this point, um, and Python is something I'm picking up in the background of everything else that I'm doing. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of utility potentially for R or Python. And I do agree with this person that in the UX world, there is a lot of a trend suddenly that you're seeing of you see a lot of job posting for quantitative UX researchers. And there's not as many of those that are specialized in using tools like R and Python or SQL or whatever it may be. So that skill set is it's not required, but I think over time it's going to kind of be a benefit to a lot of people to pick up those more heavy data analysis skills. Now, at the end of the day, the reason that it depends is because what what are you doing in Excel? <laughs> what what's really the the thing that you're having to go and ask people like 
for help with? Um, or what are you Googling to figure out? Because if it's if it's simple things that you don't really need something as powerful as a programming language to do very deep statistical analyses or do you know complex data visualizations or even build applications, then maybe Excel is the way to go. If you're just comparing things and you're writing kind of simplistic formulas, which do not let me confuse you, L in Excel you can write very complex formulas that I am horrible at doing. Uh, but I think the tool really it just depends on what you need it for. Um, and so looking into R and Python may tell you quickly that Excel is just the easier thing to, to use because um, you don't have to necessarily learn an entire programming language. There is an argument to be made that you have to learn the language of Excel and how it works and some of its nuances to get the most out of it. Um, but I would say with stuff like Google Sheets or Microsoft Excel, which is readily available, there may be less of a learning curve for something like R Python, um, but it all depends on where you want to take the skill set. And what do you what do you actually need it for? If it's data science skills, probably R Python down the road might be helpful. If it's just kind of, you know, the basics of comparing and cataloging and coming up with quick statistics from uh, UX research, then maybe Excel is the way to go. Um, but Nick, what's your yeah. perspective on Excel versus R or Python or Django or whatever? See, I love when you and I have differing opinions on things because I'm gonna go say go go ham on Excel. Um, and, and the reason being is because Microsoft Excel is, is, or the Microsoft Office suite, I should say. And this is the same reason why I recommend PowerPoint over many other prototyping tools is because it's ubiquitous. It's basically in every business that exists and those skills transfer to the Google suite and to other things, you know, depending on which one it is, there's varying levels of, uh, robustness, but for the same reason that it's ubiquitous, I think is uh, you should you should go ham on it. Now, I think the the thing is, you say it's simple, it's easy easy to learn, hard to master. I think that's that's a uh, a good way to put it. Where I think maybe R or Python are harder to learn, um, relatively speaking. All depends. It, it does depend on your learning style. I will say that you know like. There's uh, if, if you feel comfortable with coding languages, you might want to go investigate R or Python. But I will say there are going to be times in which you are operating in an environment where you need to share a document with other people. And unless those people have the skills in R or Python, they will not be able to replicate what you have done. You have then uh, cornered yourself into a box where you are then responsible for all the work and that could be what you want and that's okay um but if you want to if you need to do a collaborative thing it might it might be good to have those excel skills uh because like blake said you can write insanely complex um analyses in excel i don't think the data is is that bad i mean like you don't have as much control but it's not bad right you can get away with a lot with excel yeah so I, I don't know. I'm I'm team Excel. Blake is team R or Python. Um, but just because we disagree on that, I think it it largely it depends on your learning style. It depends on your learning style. It depends on what you're comfortable with. It depends on um, you know what tools are available to you in your job or or your research. Right. I, I don't know. I, I I'm team Excel. Uh, I could talk your ear off about Excel. Please reach out to me if you need more Excel advice. 
<laughs> All right. I think any other thoughts on that one, Blake? <laughs> no, I think we're good. All right. Let's go ahead and get into this next part of the show, which is one more thing. It needs no introduction. This is just where we talk about one more thing. Blake, what's going on in your world, man? I always think that the show is over and we get to this point and I can't even remember what my one more thing was. Um, not a whole lot going in my going on in my little world at the moment, man. It's uh so I'm just at the moment kind of spending my evenings trying to finish up an application that I've been building uh for some like basically cataloging and tracking various guitar exercises that I've picked up over the years and I'm building a react like a electron wrapped in react based application so that's really what i've been focusing on um let way more way less design than i would like and much more of like why is this thing not work Uh, but that's and so it's kind of ironic that python came up because that all of a sudden was an idea that i had like oh maybe i should try and learn python for this whole thing and it was not what i needed to do uh but anyway oops so nothing much man i'm just enjoying a little bit of still trying to learn how to code but making it interesting through some personal projects go you go you with the personal enrichment i also did some personal enrichment this last weekend uh did you what'd you do i I feel like i should be a qualified electrician now i (laughs) i did some shoddy electrician work uh i'm not gonna show you for a couple reasons let me describe what i did so for listeners of the pod you know i'm building a pod pod uh, around me, I have a structure of uh, of wood that I will panel up soon, and I will put in a door right here. And uh, one thing that I wanted to do, since all the electronics are kind of hidden behind this desk and between the wall and the desk, uh, I wanted an easy way to turn off all non-essential functions. So this is the monitors. This is the keyboard and mouse. This is my uh, microphone, my headset, my camera, uh, basically everything that is not my computer. And so um, I've done some shoddy electrician work uh, to where I've hooked up a switch over here on my right. It's gonna be right by the door. Uh, I can flip the switch as I leave my little office pod in the night and it turns everything off, saves electricity. It's great. Um, I should be a fully qualified electrician now because I can do it. I I actually did it using an extension cable, which is, uh, this is why I call it shoddy. So. Um, I took one of those, uh, you know, power strips, not an electrician, don't recommend doing this. Uh, I took one of those power strips and I plugged every non-essential thing into it. And then I took uh, an extension cable with the same gauge of cord, which is very important for carrying load, very important. And then I ran it through a wall switch over here. And uh, I basically interrupted that circuit so that way I could turn off that whole thing with one flip of the switch and turn it on with one flip of the switch and everything's on and it works great i love it it's fantastic um you know and and then work on the pod will continue i've been slowly chipping away at this thing i now have cardboard up over uh, all sides not the ceiling yet but this is basically the world's most advanced box fort and i'm happy about that so you know nice. until i can get some drywall in here and start actually patching it up <laughs> that's where Who i'm needs at it, man the cardboard will be awesome 
<laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think that's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the story this week. Have you used VR for learning? Let us know. You can hang out with us in our Slack or Discord. Get to us on any of our social channels. I do recommend following those for reasons that will become obvious next week. Visit our official website. Sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. Leave us a five-star review. That's free to you. Uh, smash that like button wherever you're at. That helps other people find the show. Tell your friends about us. Uh, consider supporting us on Patreon. That's a way that you can support us financially. That really does help keep the lights on. Literally. Uh, we use this thing and, uh, you know, restream and all the video recording software, all that stuff. Anyway, all that stuff out of the way. Uh, I want to thank, uh, Mr. Blake Arnsdorf for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about VR learning, R, or Python? You guys can definitely find resources for learning Pi, Pi, Python and a little bit of R in our Human Factors Cast Discord in the resources section. You can always find me in there at Blake, and you can find me across social media at Don't Panic UX. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific for office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Until next time, it, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.